Dr. Kathleen Nato is the clinical psychologist and director of Chesapeake Center for ADHD, Learning, and Behavioral Health, as well as the author of several books on ADHD and girls. She joins us today to talk about the history and trajectory of ADHD and shares how it is not a disorder of childhood. She shares how the DSM diagnostic criteria is derived from boys and highlights how hyperactivity is not central to ADHD and that the core symptoms have to do with executive functioning, stating that executive functioning is the heart and soul of ADHD. ADHD is not about a deficit of attention. It's about a dysregulated attention system. She talks about the social interactions and impacts on girls with ADHD, why girls get diagnosed when they hit puberty, and the link between ADHD and estrogen. She shares how girls with ADHD live with anxiety and embarrassment as they try hard to avoid criticism. This is a masterclass, Smarties, where Dr. Nato advocates for parental social engineering to mitigate the social impact of ADHD on girls. We are so honored to have the opportunity to get to chat with people like Dr. Nato. And if you are enjoying the content we have been bringing this year, we would love it if you would go ahead and rate us on Apple Podcasts with five stars, and even throw in a review there. We read them, we screenshot them as a way of reminding us of the work that we're doing and the why of the work that we're doing. So if we are making an impact, go ahead and give us a five-star review and write a lovely review about us on Apple Podcasts. Now, let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer you have to learn smarter the educational therapy podcast hi smarties welcome to episode 220 of learn smarter the educational therapy podcast i'm stephanie pitts and i'm rachel cap and today we have a treat for you we have dr kathleen nato with us who specializes in a lot of things but she tells us all about girls with adhd so welcome Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really pleased that you have invited me because um, although the book that I co-authored many years ago was a top seller then, what I'm hearing is that the word still hasn't gotten out to the educational community and to parents. So I'm always excited to be invited to talk about girls with ADHD. Yay. Thank you for that. So why don't we start with introducing you? I mean, our audience likely knows you, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about you and the work that you do? Happy to talk about it. I am a clinical psychologist. I have been in practice for many, many years. And when I was in graduate school, what I was taught about ADHD makes me cringe to think back because I, like everyone else in those days, thought that it was a disorder that affected boys, that it was mostly about hyperactivity, and I cringed to think about the number of parents that I assured their son would outgrow it when they hit puberty. And we had that misperception because boys do tend to become less hyperactive when they hit puberty, and we thought that's what it was all about. So... All these years later, I've been on this 
amazing, fascinating journey that continues today. And when I say that, there isn't a month that goes by that I don't learn something new that we didn't know before Hmm. or expand my knowledge about areas about ADHD. And so I've spent my long career looking for who are we ignoring? Who are we not understanding? Who are we not including as we talk about ADHD? I went from working with kids and their parents, which is what everybody did way back in the ADHD dark ages. (laughs) And it became very apparent to me that the parents said, I was just like this when I was a kid. In fact, I'm still a lot like this now. And so we talked about ADHD residual type as if there were just a few odd people that continued to have these challenges, but it was really a disorder of childhood. And it became very evident to me from just talking to the parents, that wasn't the case. And so the first time that I reached out to say, who are we ignoring, was to talk about adult ADHD. And this was more than 30 years ago that I started that journey. Mm -hmm. And it was in the mid-90s that the recognition that lots of adults have ADHD just exploded, 1995, Hmm. thereabouts. So I published the first book for professionals on the diagnosis and treatment of ADHD of adults. And I remember having lunch with a friend of mine in New York City, and she said, congrats on the book, and now what should we be paying attention to? Now that this explosion about, okay, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, you name it, everybody's writing about this amazing recognition. Adults have it too. So we're sitting there at lunch and we immediately agree, well, you know, who's being ignored now is girls and women. Mm -hmm. And so we started on that journey in the mid nineties. And I have worked with my longtime writing partner, Dr. Patricia Quinn. She's now retired. She was a developmental pediatrician and had done research on ADHD, was, had very in-depth knowledge. And we started out working on what is different about girls and women. Why are they overlooked? How can we teach people to recognize that girls have ADHD, whether you're a teacher in the classroom, a parent, a psychotherapist. And we wrote two books, one called Understanding Girls with ADHD and a second book, Understanding Women with ADHD. And that was in the 90s. So here we are (laughs) 20-something years later, and there's still an amazing lack of awareness. It's much better, much better than it used to be, but it still isn't where we need to be. And I've had conversations with some of the premier ADHD researchers in the country who will sort of tell me as if they're saying a secret. Now, this isn't official, but we believe we're eventually going to conclude that just as many females as males have this thing we call ADHD. Mm-hmm. If you look at the research, you still won't see that even today. And that's because the diagnostic criteria in the DSM, the sort of Bible of psychiatric diagnosis, 
the diagnostic criteria, even though they shift slightly with each iteration of the DSM, still is a list of criteria developed through the observation of boys. Yeah. So they're not very good for identifying adults, and they're even worse for identifying females. So let's go into that because it's very well known about what boy ADHD looks like. But as you have explained, girl ADHD presents itself very differently. And so what does that look like? Well, let me toss another complication into the mix. Okay. Because everybody's familiar with what impulsive, hyperactive boy ADHD looks like. Mm-hmm. But there are lots and lots of boys that don't fit that profile. They're much more similar to the girls in the profile they present. So they're overlooked too, unless you're working with somebody that's really familiar with what it looks like. We've gone through an interesting process. The general public, and I think many, many teachers, still focus on the hyperactivity and impulsivity because that's what's so hard to manage. When you've got kids in your classroom, that's what's so disruptive. When you're trying to raise a child at home, that's what's driving you crazy. So everybody knows about that. But what we have come to decide is that the core of ADHD is not that hyperactivity and impulsivity. In fact, those symptoms do tend to lessen with age, which is why we mistakenly thought people outgrew it. Mm. But the core symptoms have more to do with what we call executive functioning. And sadly, some people think that there's this separate disorder called executive functioning disorder. That is the heart and soul of what ADHD is. So whether you're hyperactive and impulsive or not, you have executive functioning issues. And what are executive functioning issues? Those are the skills that we need to just function well in our daily life. They're self-management skills, whether we're managing our tasks, we're managing our belongings, we're managing our emotions, we're managing our focus. How well can we manage the way we interface with the world? Those are the executive functioning issues. And we call them executive because that comes from the word execute, meaning getting stuff done. Adulting so hard. (laughs) Getting stuff done is so hard. And I have just finished a book that'll be released in the fall about older adults with ADHD. It's the first book ever written on older adults with ADHD. And I worked on this book over the past four years, interviewed many, many older adults. And the number one ADHD issue that they report struggling with is getting things done. Yeah. Even in retirement, I just can't seem to get things done. So that difficulty with executive functioning plagues us from preschool years throughout our lives. I'm thinking of some people that I worked with in my past life as a preschool teacher who definitely absolutely struggled with ADHD and would talk openly about it. And she was always paired up with somebody who had incredibly strong executive functioning skills because they could execute the vision. 
the creativity was there, but the execution was, she couldn't get from A to Z. Well, in thinking about how to accomplish it. Especially in the United States, we are so focused on productivity. Yes. That we see people with this thing we call ADHD as handicapped, disabled. And my view of it is more that it's a type of a brain. And I'm not one of those people that say, oh, it's a gift and we should celebrate it. I think that's silly too. I mean, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Mm -hmm. In fact, somebody, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but somebody wrote a book titled, If ADHD is a Gift, Can I Return It? (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was a hilarious title. That's clever. (laughs) Yeah. But given that, people with these brains that we call ADHD, and it's a misnomer, it's not a deficit of attention. In fact, People with ADHD can pay attention very powerfully, which confuses teachers. And parents. Because they say, well, look, you've been doing this for hours. What do you mean you can't pay attention? And what I try to explain to teachers and parents is it's not an attention deficit. We have a dysregulated attention system. So sometimes we're so hyper-focused that you're oblivious to what's happening around you when other people would not be oblivious. And sometimes you're so caught up in your own thoughts or distractibility in your environment that you can't pay attention at all and everything in between. I mean, a story about myself, I am one of many females in my family that has ADHD. And when I was in elementary school, I was an avid reader. Now, that doesn't sound like ADHD, does it? But I grew up in a noisy family with four kids, and this was before much television, before there were other great escapes. So reading for me was going down the rabbit hole into these wonderful worlds that would allow me to escape all of the noise and chaos going on in my living room. And my grandmother insisted that my mother get my hearing tested because I would sit there on the living room couch seven, eight, nine years old with my nose buried in a book and they would call me and I wouldn't answer. I had no idea they were calling me. Mm. That's ADHD too. That's not neurotypical to be so engrossed in something that you literally don't hear somebody 10 feet away calling your name. So it's complicated. And I think that ADHD gets talked about in such a simplistic way which is one of the reasons why so many kiddos are overlooked. And I'd like to shift this discussion more to focus on girls in particular, because yes, there are girls that fit the impulsive hyperactive stereotype that we have of boys, but not an awful lot of them. And these girls can be bossy, interrupting, loud. What studies have shown is they typically aren't in any way oppositional to their teachers. This is an important point I want to come back to, but they can be very tough customers with their peers. They can be critical of them, provocative. And Steve Hinshaw, I don't know if you've learned of Steve Hinshaw, but if you haven't, he'd be a wonderful person to talk to. He was the head of the Department of Psychology at UC Berkeley 
for a long time. He's still there. And he did a wonderful thing. He ran a summer camp on the UC Berkeley campus for girls. And his intention was to study girls with ADHD, but the girls with ADHD did not know that they were the subject of research. He had grad students that were kind of the camp counselors, and there were girls without ADHD and girls with. And so they had this wonderful natural lab to study what goes on within girls with ADHD and between girls. And what Steve Henshaw told us is that the hyperactive impulsive girls are socially rejected. In other words, the neurotypical girls didn't like them. They wanted to play the game their way. They might grab something impulsively because they wanted to play with it, or they might angrily call somebody a name or interrupt, or just they were disruptors compared to the neurotypical girls. Whereas the inattentive girls, Steve Henshaw used the term socially neglected, meaning people didn't dislike them, but these girls didn't know how to interact. They couldn't keep up with the speed of interaction between the other girls. They couldn't catch all the subtleties of verbal and nonverbal communication, especially in a group interaction. And so they were just kind of shy and on the periphery and socially anxious. So Steve had this wonderful learning lab for years, and we've learned an awful lot about girls from the research articles that he's written. I wanted to talk about the social impacts and how important that is for girls compared to boys? That's a great question. What we find, if we talk to parents, parents report that their sons with ADHD have social problems. If you talk to the boys themselves, they do not report social problems. Mm -hmm. They're less focused socially. They may have one or two guys that they hang out with and you know, if somebody gets mad at them, they'll just go hang out with somebody else. Totally different picture for girls. Social interaction throughout our lives is much more central to female well-being. And I find that reflected across the board that whenever we, for example, start some kind of a therapy group or support group at our clinic, almost all the people that sign up are female. They want to connect with each other, talk to each other, support each other, learn to understand themselves through talking to other females that have this thing we call ADHD, whereas we don't have that with guys. And they may be wanting to, I want to manage my business better, or my wife is always mad at me and I want to fix that, but they're not out there trying to understand their ADHD in a social context. And I find for females, and as you know, I mentioned interviewing older adults with ADHD, so many of the women said, and these are women that are in their 70s, saying, it's been painful for me my entire life. I always known I was different. I may not have even been diagnosed until I was in my 50s or 60s. Now I understand what went on, but I still don't quite get it. I still don't understand how to integrate comfortably into a general social context. 
And so I find that one of the most powerful ways that we can therapeutically help these girls is in a group setting. I mean, I think it would be utterly fantastic and much easier to do in terms of educational therapy to form groups of these girls at school because I think they would find so much solace in the company of each other, so much safety. These people I get, and here I feel safe, and I don't feel safe anywhere else. So what we find, and one of the reasons that girls are so hard to diagnose, comparatively speaking, is that girls do their level best to stay under the radar. When they start school, there's a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. I'm going to get in trouble with a teacher because I stopped listening for a few minutes and now she's called on me and I don't even know what she asked me. I just heard her say my name. And so there's this anxiety and these girls try to do their work as best they can to not get in trouble. A smart girls, it's very common for a girl with an above average IQ to say, I was a straight A student in elementary school. And these girls are not going to be identified as having ADHD. I have a granddaughter who's now soon to be 17. And because she's a member of my family, I knew she had ADHD when she was very little. And yet she is super bright, straight A student when her mother, my daughter, went to ask for accommodations when she was in fourth grade. She needed accommodations on tests because it just took her longer to gather her thoughts together and write. She's a beautiful writer, but she needs more time. The teachers almost laughed her out of the room. Are you kidding us? This is one of our top students. We've got so many kids with greater needs. She's not going to get any accommodations here. In fact, they just assumed that my daughter was being kind of neurotic, Mm -hmm. that she needed any kind of help. And here she is in high school now and is applying for accommodations for her SATs and finally has convinced her high school teachers, I really do need longer to write this exam. If I'm going to really be able to demonstrate what I know, it takes me a lot longer to pull it all together. So we work so hard to hide it that you can't blame the teachers or the parents for not recognizing it because the girls are doing everything they can to not be noticed. And what we find is that the most common time for girls to be diagnosed is when they hit puberty. And there's a reason for that. And that is the interaction between hormonal fluctuation and ADHD. What we now know is that estrogen really impacts receptors in our brain. And when our estrogen levels are lower, our dopamine receptors and our serotonin receptors are less sensitive. And so that means the week before our period, when our estrogen levels are lower, we have less focus and we're moodier and more anxious because that's what those receptors manage. And then estrogen levels rise and we feel better. And it's cyclical and it's very troubling. And there's a variety of levels of reaction to the menstrual cycle. But PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, is now a diagnosis. And basically that just means very bad 
premenstrual symptoms, and you're more likely to have PMDD if if you have ADHD for that reason. And that continues throughout all the years that females menstruate. Wow, that's interesting. I don't think we've ever talked about that on the podcast. Mm-mm. Oh, and it's not talked about nearly enough to the point that I have been on panels. I organized a panel on women with ADHD, was asked about hormones, and a male researcher on the panel contradicted what I said and said, there's no research that documents that. I've never seen any evidence of that. And I go, whoa, we've got a problem here. Yeah. And what I've noticed recently when I've been invited to speak on international panels, Canadian physicians, there's no controversy. Oh, yes, yes, we know that, and we write about it. It seems to be a blind spot that we Americans still are struggling with, which is serious in terms of helping women because what also happens is perimenopause is a period of about a decade before we hit full-on menopause, which is defined as not having had a menstrual period for a year. And during that decade, which is sort of your 40s, basically, estrogen levels slowly, slowly, slowly decline and ADHD symptoms slowly, slowly, slowly increase. And so women who've been diagnosed, women who've been treated go, what's going on? All these symptoms are coming back. Very interesting. It's very interesting because when you hear about a lot of women in their 40s and 50s getting diagnosed, that makes sense. That makes sense. It's the same reason girls are diagnosed at puberty. That's when it gets worse. Oh, interesting. And then it seems to level out. It's not that ADHD remains severe the rest of your life. It seems to level out. It seems to be more a matter of fluctuating hormonal levels that really trigger the ADHD symptoms. So if you're having a really hard time when you're 49 or 50, it doesn't mean you're going to be having a super hard time 10 years later. It readjusts. It does. However, I did a consult with a woman 70 years old a few days ago, and she asked me a question no one had ever asked me, which was, I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. They caught it very early. I'm not going to have to go through radiation, but I am going to have to take a medication that will basically completely block my estrogen for the rest of my life is that going to increase my ADHD symptoms? And I told her, you're the first person that's ever asked me that. I am sure there's no research on the topic, but let me talk to my colleague, Patricia Quinn, because she's the one that's been beating the drum about the link. And so I wrote her and she immediately wrote back saying there is no research, but basically anything that is going to lower estrogen levels is of course going to negatively impact ADHD. Wow. So we've got it all of our lives. We're at risk for having a harder time with it. Big wow. Yes. No, it is. But I'm also curious about how feminism impacts that because feminists want to present to the world we're equal of men. And so having this biological 
difference in biological reality and the link between that hormone and ADHD symptoms is just it's a very interesting complex multi-layered problem within the research and then problem with an understanding because in my practice we focus on learners with ADHD and executive functioning skills challenges and I have never heard about this link and so I'm really glad that we got to have that aspect of the conversation what else do you have for us what else should we know yeah that we don't know that you find that this should be common knowledge and people in the field themselves don't know that information yet well let me respond to what you just said about feminism though because i think that being Equal does not mean being identical. Correct. There are many, many things that females are better at than males. Our brains are different. And I think that there was such a defensiveness that any difference that was documented would be used against us. Oh, you know, she's just got one of those female brains that can't do X, Y, or Z. And yet I have a running joke with my husband, who is an astrophysicist and his very smart, nerdy scientific colleagues. (laughs) In fact, several scientists were over at my house about a week ago and my husband was pouring wine and I asked him a question and he said, wait a minute, I'm pouring the wine. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I started laughing and I said, the human race would not have survived if a mom had said, wait, wait a minute, I'm pouring the orange juice. I'm sorry if you fell off the cliff over there, but I'm really busy. You know. <laughs> We've had to be very good multitaskers. We've had to be very good communicators because we are the ones doing all that communicating. And so it's just different brains, not superior or inferior. I think that women's brains are by nature much more tuned in to human interaction because that's the seed that we swim in, that we want to be connected, that we want to be heard. We have much greater self-awareness. We teach that awareness to our children And that's a huge, critical input into the creation of functional human beings as we grow up. I mean, I sat at the dinner table with my two wonderful granddaughters, both of whom have ADHD. One is 12, the other is 16. And they had the most involved, insightful discussion about romantic relationships that just really blew my mind that they had thought about it a great deal. And the older one was saying, well, I've had four relationships so far, and I think each one is an improvement on the last one. And I think of them as learning experiences and that we need to learn how to have a good relationship. And the 12-year-old is saying, I just don't get it. I mean, you know, it's just really not necessary. Now, maybe when I'm a lot older, but I just don't see the need for a relationship. (laughs) (laughs) So interesting. 
It is interesting. And these kids are so aware of social roles and sexual roles and talk about it all the time, which I think is just an enormous female strength that we bring to the table. And I hope that feminism gets beyond, I'm just as big as you, I'm just as strong as you, in fact, I'm going to try to look like you, so you'll take me seriously, to bringing all the richness that we have to the table. Yep. Fair is not always equal. That is true. Yes. There are all kinds of differences. And getting back to the positive side of ADHD, my younger granddaughter will tell you very seriously, and I believe it will come to pass when I grow up, I plan to be an artist. She is very creative and she lives, she swims in fantasy and ideas and she draws and she can tell me when I'm on my stimulant medication, my brain can't do that. And so she takes stimulants and she sits there and she listens to the science teacher and she listens to the math teacher and she can't wait for it to wear off so I can be my creative self after school. And I think that that is one of the gifts that we bring to the table as people with ADHD that sometimes gets lip service, but I don't think that we fully appreciate what people with these kinds of creative brains bring to the table. Some research was just published this past month talking about always learning about new ideas in ADHD. We're now paying attention to neural networks. Our brains function via neural networks. We used to sort of divide the brain up, you know, here's the language, here's the motor, here's the, you know, visual. Our brains don't function, you know, like a department store. It's all connected. And they have done research showing that the connectivity of highly creative people is different, measurably different, because we can do functional MRIs now. And I posit, in fact, I want to write to the authors of this study, I would like you to look at the brains of people with ADHD, because they were just looking at highly creative types And I bet a bunch of them do have ADHD, but they were just focusing on the creativity. And when we're talking to educators, we really need to help them focus. I think there's so much emphasis in education on production. Here's the assignment, get it done. Here's the next assignment, get it done. Do it on time, do it accurately. And I remember being so frustrated as a little girl with, of course, undiagnosed ADHD in those days. And I was a good student. I enjoyed school. And I would get so frustrated that I got marked off because I didn't write the date at the top of my assignment. Like that was the important thing, not the essay I wrote, but I forgot the date. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have known some of the most wonderful teachers who have ADHD and are creative and lively and connect with the students and make the learning process engaging and interesting. And those very same teachers are criticized by the school administration because they have trouble with their paperwork and getting the grading in on time and all the details. And so 
we need to be more aware of that as educators, that being orderly and accurate is not the be-all and end-all. Especially, I mean, that people with these quirky brains may grow up to do amazing, amazing things. There is a Nobel Prize winning scientist named Carrie Mullis, who is the most ADHD person you would ever encounter in your entire life. And I was at a conference in San Diego when he was announced as a Nobel Prize winner. I happened to be there at an ADHD conference. And the keynote speaker held up the headlines of the San Diego paper and said, has anybody read this? Is he ADHD or what? (laughs) And he's the guy that did the initial research that led to the Human Genome Project. And on the day that he won, or announced that he won the Nobel Prize, he knew he was going to get it. He called his best friend, a fellow scientist, and said, I want to go surfing. Surf's up. And I know reporters are going to be beating down my door. So would you come over here and pretend to be me for a couple of hours? And they did it. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) And he goes surfing and he comes back in his wetsuit with his surfboard, says, hi, guys, I'm Carrie, you know. And they've been talking to his friend for the past hour. So I really try to emphasize to educators that these really quirky, creative brains have an incredible amount to offer. And if all we emphasize is coloring within the lines, we are missing the boat with these brains that can contribute so much. Hmm. So what do I want to be sure that you understand about girls? Yeah. I want teachers and parents to understand that they live, for the most part, with an overwhelming level of anxiety throughout their lives, anxious that they're going to screw up, embarrassed, trying very hard to avoid criticism, and therefore sort of squelching their own capabilities, and socially anxious because their brains have a hard time just keeping up with the interplay. And as we all know, little girls can be quite mean if you don't quite fit in. And so you can easily be picked on. And so you can learn to just stay out of the melee in order to not get criticized for not fitting in. You know, I think my younger granddaughter is thriving in school because she's going to a private school that just sort of revels in, you know, being yourself. Mm-hmm. And so hilariously, she will go to school wearing short shorts and combat boots, you know. Oh, yeah. That was her. I'm it, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can't categorize me. <laughs> So my question about that is, what about the girls that are bullies, the ones that are mean to their peers and don't quite socially fit in on that end? Talk to me about that. How can we help them? Very often, I talk to parents a lot about social engineering, that the way you can help your daughter is to really try to create a social environment in which she can thrive. And a lot of these girls 
are more rough and tumble. I've worked with a bunch of girls that loved hanging out at the horse barn because they could be as gruff and blunt and physically aggressive and, you know, joking around and calling people names and just they didn't have to be frilly and feminine. They could be themselves in an environment like that. A lot of girls get along better if they're in a sports team because they can be that rough and tumble. They can be aggressive and it's appropriate. You know, if you're playing lacrosse, if you're playing soccer, then you're a star instead of. So I really try to help them find environments where they can more comfortably be themselves. I worked with one mother. I think she deserves a gold medal for motherhood. And her daughter was so lonely that she started basically organizing weekly slumber parties at her house. And mom just, you know, picked a group of, I don't remember exactly, four or five girls in her daughter's class. And she had a pizza party and movies and just made it like everybody wants to go to so-and-so's house because that's the fun place to be on Friday night. So she created an environment where girls were nice to her because they wanted in on the party. They wanted, Mm. you know... If a third of the girls in the class were going to this party, they wanted to be in that group. And so it takes a lot more social engineering for girls that don't fit in. Some girls are perfectly happy to have one best friend, and and that's their safety. That's who they eat lunch with. That's who they walk home with. That's who they spend the night with. And that's fine. I'm certainly not saying that all girls need a large coterie of friends to be able to feel good about themselves. I also am a big believer in helping these girls understand their brains to realize they may have a teacher or a mother who is very big on the details. And I really try to give them understanding and permission that I'm just a different kind of a person. Mm. Humorously, I gave a talk years ago at a local ADHD conference, and I introduced a new diagnosis called attention surplus disorder that many people suffer from. And I created a checklist of 10 symptoms. You know, do you like to sort your socks? Do you always focus (laughs) on keeping your ducks in a row at all times? You know, just making a joke of it, that that is not the epitome of perfection. And I also try to help people understand, you know, when you were talking about people you knew who paired with somebody with very strong executive functioning skills, that that's an ideal pairing. And very often, the people that have that attention to detail, accountants are not known for their creativity, they are known for their accuracy. And I really try to emphasize that they're just all kinds of brains and we can complement each other and work very productively together. And I really try to teach kids that from a very early age, that you don't need to conform to what the teacher or, or even necessarily your parent as you should be. I find often that a man with ADHD marries a woman with very strong executive functioning skills. Mm-hmm. She has kids with ADHD and she's trying to get them in a row. She's trying to, mm-hmm. we need to leave in 12 minutes. 
have you got your timer on? You know. <laughs> I get that call all the time where the mom and the dad are on the phone and the dad would go, well, you know, they're like me. And the mom goes, yes, they are. <laughs> like, Cause she is just trying to get everybody to the right place on time. <laughs> like that's exactly right. Exactly. And what I try to help those moms learn is it doesn't mean that you have to live in chaos. That's not good for anybody's brain, but I was a big believer in to go breakfast items, we're running late here, you're going to eat your breakfast in the car while I'm driving you to high school that actually should start an hour and a half later than it does. Right. Yeah. Correct. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. We are all in agreement about that. <laughs> well, we want to thank you so much and we want to be respectful of your time, but this was really a master class in things we thought we had a lot of information about ADHD before, and this just gave us so much more to think about. So thank you for sharing the research and your expertise with us and with our audience. Thank you for taking the time. Well, I'm so happy that you invited me. I never want to miss a chance to help spread the word because there's so many girls out there that are struggling that don't know why they're struggling. Their parents don't know. Their teachers don't know. So Spread the word. You're doing very good work. How can our audience get in touch with you? The best way to get in touch with me is through my clinic. And my clinic is chesapeakeadd.com.